The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Open a channel. This is Lieutenant Commander Data of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Cora. I take it that is your name. May I inquire as to your destination? No. May I ask the purpose of your journey? No. Perhaps I have not made our intentions clear. We're investigating. He seems most uncooperative. Sir, may I recommend that we bring the shuttlecraft aboard with our tractor beam, search it, and interrogate Corral? According to the terms of the Klingon Federation Treaty, Corral has every right to free transit through Federation space. We cannot board or search his vessel without cause. Yes, sir. However, the treaty does give us the right to conduct health and safety inspections on any ship in our space. Health and safety inspections? I am not certain that using this clause as an excuse to conduct a search would be consistent with the spirit of the treaty. However, if Corral wishes to contest our actions, he can file a protest with the Judge Advocate General's office, bring the shuttle aboard. Then you and Dr. Crusher may begin the inspection. Aye, sir. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 28th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, it's safety first. That appears to be the arching theme of our show today. But it's really not what we're talking about. Safety concerns and safety regulations are going to make the proposed legalization of marijuana in Canada look worse than the current prohibition. At least that's what I think, Robert. And I'll be examining why I think this is so as we segue into the second half of our show today. And you, you're going to be talking about? I have two issues, Bob. Mm-hmm. First, I'm going to talk about uh, the thought police. Oh, no. And secondly, I'll, I'll bring up um, putting a woman on a banknote here in Canada and in the United States. Oh, dear. Is she going to have to sit on that note all day long? Oh, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, before we continue our silliness, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5130, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Well, Bob, did you realize that we all missed an important day back on February 9th of this year? That's right, February 9th was International Safer Internet Day. Yes, since 2004, people have been celebrating International Safer Internet Day. Apparently, this is the day observed by politicos and police departments around the world. It gives them the excuse to squander their budgets on stupid posters designed to scare us and to threaten us. It's all to make us safer surfers, you see. You know, all that health and safety. It's all about health and safety. In an effort to ensure our continued safety online and to mark International Safer Internet Day, the Ontario Provincial Police issued a poster called Think Before You Send. The poster read as follows, and it's an acronym, T-H-I-N-K. T, is it true? H, is it hurtful? I, is it illegal? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? 
I asked the same of the OPP. T, is it true? Is the internet such a bad virtual place as you pretend it is? H, is it hurtful? You're the ones with the guns on your hips. Do you really think that posting derogatory comments really are hurtful or just plain commentary? Who are you to decide? I, is it illegal? Well, this is a no-brainer, but we don't need you to educate us about the law. We just need you to uphold the law. Thank you very much. N, is it necessary? In the parlance of the youth these days, WTF? Is the internet being rationed now? Are there only so many keystrokes and mouse clicks allowed that we must keep track of how much interneting we are doing so that we don't run out? Is it necessary? Again, WTF? K, is it kind? Well, you know what they say, you got to be cruel to be kind, which brings me to Ezra Levant and his response via Twitter to the OPP regarding their think-before-you-send poster. F you, come and get me, thought police. <laughs> That's right. Ezra. That's the academic approach. <laughs> yes. Ezra tweeted F you to the OPP, and he really spelled it out for them, if you know what I mean. He didn't say uh, okay. F you. <laughs> he used the whole word. Ezra was blocked from tweeting anymore to the OPP. At the risk of offending women everywhere, and at the risk of unnecessarily sending an unkind and possibly hurtful yet true and still legal message to the OPP, I really believe that the OPP have become feminized. They have to be. In reading this poster, who isn't reminded of their mother scolding them for calling somebody fatty in the schoolyard? Who doesn't imagine their mother standing over them with their hands with her hands on her hips and a finger wagging in the ear saying, Was that really necessary? Why did you say something so hurtful and unkind? I have a good mind to call the police. Feminized. Apart from the incomparable Ezra Levant and the rebel, how did the other journalists or people uh, handle uh, this OPP poster? Well, here's some uh, responses to the tweet that the OPP put out on Think Before You Send. Oh. Mark Stein chimed in and said, Why don't you thought police wankers, T-H-I-N-K, before threatening citizens with laws you've made up? Hashtag come and get me, copper. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McKeever, co-host of this show and leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, tweeted, Only the I applies. Tweeting otherwise is untrue, hurtful to the administration of justice, unnecessary and unkind. Brian Goodwin tweeted, Nazi effing scum. Again, he didn't just use F. <laughs> Boy, uh, so, some really emotional responses to this. And quite appropriate if you ask me. Hmm. Pope Hat, that's what he goes by tweeted this is a good thing for parents to tell their children but it is a thing for armed not but is it a thing for la armed law enforcement to tell free citizens he goes on to say is it a true threat is it the solicitation of an immediate crime if not then sod off you blue polyestered fascist pig <laughs> i wonder if they're going to be doing this again next year <laughs> again he comes up with this nice one this halfwits isn't north korea T-H-I-N-K. <laughs> there are more. Oh, here's one from Lauren Southern, who is also with the Rebel Media. You guys are cancer. And that's at address to the OPP News. Mm. Now, how about journalists? How did they treat this campaign by the Ontario Provincial Police? True to form, the sycophantic press did the usual puff piece on the whole issue of International Safer Internet Day. Not one criticism of the police for stepping across that thin blue line separating law enforcement from the public. Not one probing question such as, 
Apart from the occasional cyberbullying case and spam emails from Nigerian princesses asking for your money, isn't the internet, which is, after all, only a means of communication, perfectly safe for the 7 billion people who use it daily? Or, how much did those posters cost? Or isn't this type of preaching stepping outside the mandate of the OPP whose prime function is to uphold the law? Or if an action isn't illegal but is still unkind and unnecessary, isn't that a matter of freedom of speech? Or how about this question? Well, those are fair questions to ask. Yeah, but nobody's asking them. Oh, I see. Nobody's asking them. Except maybe the rebel media, but they didn't really ask Ah. them either. They just said, F you. (laughs) And here's another one. Our... Are you on pretty shaky ground and coming dangerously close to the threatening of our freedom of speech with this poster? You do, after all, have the ability to arrest and jail people and even shoot them, should they resist. Instead, here's an example of the milk toast reporting we're getting used to. This is by Emily, uh, Emily Mountney Lessard of the Intelligencer of Belleville, Ontario. Organizations across the world are encouraging people to think before they send when it comes to cyber communication. February 9th marked International Safer Internet Day, designed to, quote, promote safer and more responsible use of online technology and mobile phones, especially among children and young people across the world, unquote. The day has become a, quote, landmark event in the online safety calendar, unquote, explains the Safer Internet Day website. From cyberbullying to social networking, each year Safer Internet Day aims to raise awareness of emerging online issues and chooses a topic reflecting current concerns. For SID 2016, the focus of the day is play your part for a better internet, reflecting the fact that we all have a role to play. The OPP are encouraging people across the world to think before you send to ensure safety in the online world. OPP spokesperson Inspector Robin McEachern said one of the growing concerns associated with the internet and mobile devices includes cyberbullying. Cyberbullying happens when people use computers, cell phones, or other devices to embarrass, humiliate, torment, threaten, or harass someone else. With the rapid advances in technology, cyberbullying is happening to more and more people every day. The OPP is encouraging everyone to apply the think test before posting or sending a cyber message or photo. If it doesn't pass the T, is it true? H, is it hurtful? I, is it illegal? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? You might be breaking the law by sending that image or message. And that's from the Intelligencer. What I find amazing is that I realize that cyberbullying is a broad term, but there are no particulars here. They're not saying anything. You can be accused of bullying just for giving someone a legitimate compliment, or or, or, or rather critique, rather. Yes, or commentary. Yeah, and it might be hurtful. Sorry if it hurts, if the truth hurts, as they say. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that if the truth, if it's true, but it still hurts, you're still saying you shouldn't be posting it? Uh, Yes, apparently so. If it fails any one of those uh, T-H-I-N-K standards, then you shouldn't be posting it. That's ridiculous. Or sending it. By the way, sending a text on a cell phone is not using the internet, it's a cell phone. (laughs) If there's one thing the world needs is some more truth out there. This is from the Windsorite.ca News. Today is International Safer Internet Day, and the OPP is encouraging young people and their families to think before you send to ensure the safety in the online world. Police say that one of the growing concerns associated with the internet and mobile devices includes cyberbullying. Cyberbullying happens when people use... Hang on, haven't I just read this before? 
uh, when people use computers, cell phones, and other devices to embarrass, humiliate, torment, threaten, or harass someone else. With the rapid advances in technology, cyberbullying is happening to more and more people every day. I'm sure I read this somewhere before. The OPP is encouraging everyone to, th- to apply the think test before <laughs> posting or sending cyber messages or photos. If it doesn't pass the think test, you may be breaking the law. You know, I'm pretty much word for word what the intelligencer wrote in Belleville, you know. And of course it is. And the reporters didn't even put quotation marks around those lines. They made it oh. sound as if that was their reporting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Reporting these days has come down to reprinting verbatim the press releases of police departments and government agencies and passing it off as research journalism. So, so much for all those probing questions that I came up with. You know, and I'm not even a journalist. I just came up with these questions that I, as a member of the public, would have asked the police had I seen this poster out there. You know, like, what do you think you're doing? So even though we missed International Safer Internet Day, Bob, I leave you with this message. Safety is often just an excuse to check your computer memory. Do not fall for everything you read in the newspaper. Don't be so gullible. Think, people. Think. Hello. I'm Dr. Crusher, and this is Lieutenant Worf. We're here to conduct a health and safety inspection of your ship. Health and safety inspection. That's right. Uh, you know, um, uh, radiation leaks, um, biochemical contamination, um, other health hazards. Excuse me. Well, no radiation so far. I'm sure you're glad to hear that. Right. Well, that's my third scan, and I still haven't found anything out of the ordinary. He must be hiding something. We should download his computer memory and analyze it. I'd have a hard time defending that as part of a safety inspection. We could claim that the computer was generating abnormal radiation signatures. Or if we're on pretty shaky ground as it is, we can't just... So, Bob, I have a question to ask you and our listeners out there. Who were Emily Murphy, Irene Marriott Parlby, Nellie Mooney McClung... Louise Crummy McKinney, and Henrietta Muir Edwards. Any idea, Bob? <laughs> uh, I should know one of them. We talked about her yesterday, and I already forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and I even told you that five minutes after we talked about it, I already forgot about it. Yeah. Well, the point but, is... But they're worth commemorating, aren't they? I'm yeah, sure. that's my point. If you mm-hmm. can't remember the, the answer to that question, then you just might just question why there's a move to place a woman, other than Queen Elizabeth, of course, on a Canadian banknote. These five women I just mentioned are known to some as the Famous Five. They petitioned the Supreme Court of Canada in 1927 to answer the question, does the word persons in Section 24 of the British North America Act of 1867 include female persons for the purpose of having women appointed to the Senate? The court unanimously ruled that it did not but their decision was overturned by the British Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Now, until this week, I had not known that, even though these famous five women appeared on the back of the Canadian $50 banknote for years. Perhaps I hadn't had the opportunity to handle too many $50 banknotes from 2004 to 2012 when they were so immortalized, 
but I think it more likely that I'm not as well versed in Canadian history as I should be. I bring up the famous five to illustrate a point. Is immortalizing or paying homage to people on banknotes effective in educating people about such notorious people? How many of us can say, whose visages grace the 5, 10, 20, 50, or $100 Canadian banknote? How many people remember the scenes printed on the backs of our banknotes over the years? I know of uh, Lake Moraine on the back of the 1969 and 79 issues of the $20 Canadian dollar bill, but only because I had the opportunity to visit Lake Moraine in Alberta and dutifully held up my bill on the spot depicted on the bill, Mm -hmm. shall we say, to compare notes. (laughs) Other than that... How'd they compare? <laughs> Actually, pretty, <laughs> pretty accurately, good. yeah. Other than that, none of the ardent um, numismatists uh, would seem to know or even care about the people and images on our banknotes. Why then is there a move to place a woman on the $20 bill? Why did Prime Minister Trudeau on International Women's Day, March 8th, announce that a woman would grace the $20 bill, although he did not know which woman would be depicted. And I and I ask you to take notice of this fact. We only know that a woman will appear on the currency, but not precisely who that woman is, because she is yet to be chosen. It is sufficient that the person be a woman. And this is a concern to me. I can somewhat understand honoring people by putting their image on a banknote, even if people can't remember whose face is on the banknote, but not simply because that person is a woman. That's called tokenism. Whomever is chosen will now have the dubious honor of being a token to her gender. She may or may not necessarily be remembered for whatever accomplishments she made in her life, only that she was the face of the woman on the currency, because some people wanted a woman on the currency. Or more specifically, there are those who would simply like to see fewer men on our currency. This despite the fact that all but one of our prime ministers has been a man, And Kim Campbell doesn't qualify to be on the currency because one has to be dead for at least 25 years before one gets uh, that honor. Also, despite the fact that Queen Elizabeth has graced our currency since her coronation, in fact, the 1954 series of banknotes featured her face on every single denomination of banknotes in Canada. She's a woman. There is something. And she's alive. (laughs) (laughs) How did she she get past that that regulation? (laughs) It's good to be the queen. There is something sinister in this move by Trudeau. Leave it up to him and his Liberal Party to suggest that someone deserves an honour simply because of their gender or alleged victimhood. Women have appeared on coins and banknotes for millennia. If we go back 2,000 years, we have the tribute penny featuring uh, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, on the obverse with Livia, yes, a woman on the reverse. It was when, uh, you know, this was the coin that was presented to Jesus, and when he, was, uh, when he said, uh, render under Caesar that which is Caesar. Go back 2,500 years and we see the face of the god Athena, yes, a woman, on the obverse of the uh, tetradrachma of Athens. Since then, there's really been no deliberate shortage of women on currency, at least not deliberately, I don't think that People out there saying, like, oh, we can't put her on there because she's a woman. The famous five were placed on the $50 bill with no obvious intent of tokenism. They were apparently honored because of the deeds as suffragettes and feminists at a time when women had legitimate grievances with government. Today it appears to be sufficient that you first be a woman, then your personal achievements will be taken into consideration. Hmm. 
On April 20th, the United States Treasury Department announced that Harriet Tubman, former slave and an abolitionist, was to replace the slave-owning, Democratic, President Andrew Jackson on the front of the $20 bill, with Jackson move uh, to the reverse. I don't think uh, they could have made a better choice. Tubman's accomplishments in freeing slaves and moving them along the Underground Railway to Canada were acts of pure courage and heroism. Statues and commemoratives of the gun-toting Christian Republican, Tubman, abound in the United States and, by the way, in St. Catharines, Ontario, one of the termini of the Underground Railroad and a place where Tubman actually spent some time. It's, in, it's expected that Tubman, Tubman, though, will not be featured on the, the banknote until 2030. Hmm. It takes that long to get that process in place. Meanwhile, in Canada, the search is on for the token female to grace our notes. <laughs> At the top of the most of most lists is impressionist landscape artist Emily Carr. Hardly the caliber of Tubman, but then again, Canadian history is not as violent as American history, and the opportunity for heroics, at least for women, were not as frequent as for Americans. Are you familiar with any of uh, Emily Carr's paintings, Bob? I not really. I can't say so. Uh, neither am I, and I, I had to, I looked them up, you know, in researching this article, and. I don't think that they're very good. <laughs> well, they're, they were impressionistic, first of all. So, I mean, they weren't realistic. And uh, that impressionism does not uh, appeal to you. Appeal to me uh, in the slightest. Now, Laura Secord may spring to mind as one woman who valiantly assisted in keeping Canada British by warning of a raid by the Americans during the War of 1812. And she is indeed on the Bank of Canada's list of names under consideration. Probably a, a worthy consideration, I think. Another woman being considered, and one who would be at the top of my list, probably yours too, Bob, is the author Isabel Patterson. Bob is quoted from Patterson's book, The God of the Machine, on several occasions on this program. A contemporary and correspondent of Ayn Rand, Patterson's treatise on the nature and forces of government and the rights of the individual is an essential read for anyone who cares to understand those issues in depth. And her name is on that list, so... There is a chance she might be it is uh, on the list. Isn't it, it is on the list. Wow! If you go to the Bank of Canada's uh, website, uh, they do have a list of maybe a hundred or more. Uh, they received twenty-six thousand submissions, but uh, they've listed over uh, maybe about a hundred or more uh, names there. And Isabel Patterson is there. Now, although there appear to be no hard and fast rules as to who gets to have their mug on our linen, historically the honor went to either gods, sovereigns, political leaders or those people associated with the Treasury, such as Alexander Hamilton in the United States. If such were the trend, then it would be appropriate, I think, to place a woman politician, such as Agnes MacPhail, the first woman elected to the House of Commons on the banknote. Her politics certainly fit, fit in well with the current government, her being a radical progressive socialist, whose aim, as outlined in the Regina Manifesto of her party, the CCF, was to eradicate the system of capitalism and replace it with a planned economy of socialism. Well, that, that was adopted by all the parties. <laughs> yes, it was, <laughs> including the progressive conservative right. parties. The current prime minister would miss a great opportunity not choosing a fellow pol political soulmate to appear on our filthy capitalistic money. My money, however, is on Isabel Patterson. While not a politician, she probably knew more about government than any politician of her time. What's more... She was an advocate of freedom and of capitalism. She doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> Interesting, Robert. I'd say that that would be right on the money as far oh, as I was oh, concerned. Oh. 
Last week on Wednesday, April 20th, was the annual 420 pot celebrations. Combine that with the announcement this past week that Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau plans to table legislation to legalize marijuana as early as next spring. So I thought we'd kick off our conversation on the so-called legalization of pot by first tuning in to Tom McConnell's talk show of April 20th, which aired on CJBK AM 1290 here in London. We'll hear my own conversation with Tom a little later in the show today. Let's listen in, and we'll continue the conversation when we return. Professor Anadiah Sen is an economics professor at the University of Waterloo. You have a paper that was released today through the C.D. Howe Institute about what the government should do going forward when it comes to the legalization of marijuana. Where should we direct our resources towards first? The main points are that first, I think we should uh, move forward to pardoning individuals who have a criminal card, uh, sorry, criminal code uh, charges or convictions against them, but otherwise have uh, not committed any other offense. After legalization, well, there has to be um, some very clear guidelines on what the allocation of duties and responsibilities are uh, between different tiers of government. What's paramount in this type of um, policy is not that raising the tax revenue, Colorado's done a good job of that, but uh, the public health perspective. There's a lot we still don't know about uh, marijuana consumption over a long period of time. In terms of um, penalties, there should, of course, be very strong penalties for illegal trafficking and production. You already have them for contraband tobacco, so you can just use that as a template. We haven't really had any discussion of what should regulation look like, what should a market look like, what should federal... Uh, jurisdiction be? What should the provinces actually regulate? How should the provinces efficiently distribute, uh, allow efficient distribution of marijuana, but make sure it's safe and it's not accessible to youth? So those are some of the key points. Let me ask you this, off the record. Is it true what they say about how they uh, smoke a lot of, you know, reefer? It's absolutely not true. Plus the word reefer doesn't mean anything to me. Have you ever seen Cheech and Chong, um, you know, smoke pot? No, no, I've never seen them smoke at all. No, never. No. No. No, definitely not. I haven't seen him smoke any. No, not at all. I haven't seen nothing. Well, inside of this innocent-looking grip truck, I think I've found my story. Hard evidence. What looks like an ordinary megaphone, but could it be a bong? Giant-sized roach clips? Looks to me like it's big rolling paper for that big habit of theirs. There goes the ice cream truck, remember, in, in Nice Dreams? And how do, you, how, do you, how do you think they sold the contraband in Nice Dreams? How's it going? Um, hi, Robert Walters, investigative reporter. Tell me, is this really an ice cream truck or is it just a front for drugs? But me, I must that I really speak English. Well, apparently I was wrong. 
There's no evidence of drugs or marijuana on this set whatsoever. Do you smell anything? We heard Professor Sens in conversation with Tom McConnell just before the bumper break, and we'll hear a bit more from him a little later on, after which I'll attempt to address my key points of concern. But first, let's paint a big picture using various items from various news sources, which have inescapably led me to believe that we're walking into the fryer, fr- uh, frying pan uh, from the fire, or <laughs> going into the fire from the frying pan on the marijuana legalizations. If one's intent is to end prohibition and to end the jailing of people for the possession or sale of cannabis. That's, the, that's where we're jumping into the fire, I think. Because with all the talk about pot legalization, there's no talk about ending the kind of prohibition I've described. What's being planned is a state monopoly on pot sales running concurrently with a continued prohibition on possession and sales that fall outside the monopoly or violate the new prohibition. Now, government has no business being in business, and when it does get into business, that business is always a monopoly. A monopoly justified by reasons unrelated to setting up a monopoly, usually, what was it, Robert? Health and safety, right? The new fascist justifications for just about anything governments want to control and prohibit, and we heard a lot of that from Professor Sen. Uh, This article from the December 16th, Uh, 2015 National Post commentary by Michael Dentant, who writes under the headline, Wins One Toke Too Many, okay? And he says, okay, I'll say it. What was she smoking? Except that Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne's vision of a state-run monopoly on the fragrant, fragrant weed, courtesy of the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, is quite plausible, given the logic of imminent legalization. What becomes readily apparent, as the federal liberals continue to find their footing, is that the idea of legalization of marijuana has never really been deeply examined. And this is a question that I can't believe anyone hasn't asked yet. What self-respecting stoner would be caught dead buying marijuana in a state-owned store with the government's blessing? At least half of Pot's appeal, when he was a teenager, he says, was its illegality. He says, this is a future state-owned enterprise that's ripe for bootlegging. And he says it's difficult to see how teenagers can be prevented from continuing to obtain pot from wherever they do now. Those sources are everywhere, as the liberals themselves know, he writes. And he says the price of illegal pot cannot help but be well below the LCBO standard due to the lack of taxation. And let's face it, the absence of public service wage rates and a benefit plan for grow-op staff, which is all coming, by the way. All of this raises questions of enforcement, which itself will have a cost. Will there be criminal sanctions for bootleggers? And if so, what will they be? And of course, there's the whole issue of impaired driving. Now they're all talking about making machines, so they're going to you know, spot check us on the roads for pot smoking, which is going to be very difficult because there's no standard dose of THC that, that would render anyone particularly impaired. And this is, this is another truth you don't see too often. Different people react to the drug in different ways. One person's catatomic slumber, I speak from past experience, he writes, might be another's mild, another's mild buzz, right? So they, they can't, you can't compare those things like you can with alcohol. And even alcohol is touchy sometimes. Now, right beside that very article on the same page of the National Post is a second article written by Keith Leslie of the Canadian Press with the headline, Beer Sales Roll Out in Ontario Grocery Stores on December 16th. And it has a picture of Ontario's premier, you know, and it writes, uh, she made history Tuesday simply by purchasing a six-pack of beer at a grocery store, something that hasn't been legal in the province since Prohibition. 
what do they mean since prohibition? It's still prohibition. It's just that they control it now. <laughs> Instead of organized crime controlling it, organized crime controls it. <laughs> 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 Only the legal part of it. And she and and, and uh, Kathleen Wynne, sixty-two, smiled when she was asked for proof of age. It's nice to be carded, she joked, before announcing fifty-eight stores would be now legally able to sell beer. And get this word of hypocrisy. Making it more convenient to buy beer is all about making life easier for people who lead busy lives, said Wynne. Wynne again rejected the idea of selling beer in corner stores, something first promised by the liberal government of David Peterson 30 years ago, warning that the price of beer would go up if you put it in convenience stores, end quote. So that just made my head reel. And first question, so what? <laughs> Why would Wynne care about high prices in convenience stores? Wouldn't she want that? that? That's a plus for her. All the better for the state monopoly to undercut those prices or to tax them, right? In fact, the government is always talking about setting minimum prices and hiking them all the time. So now she's complaining about high prices in the, in, in the, in the variety stores? This is such a huge contradiction. It reveals another intention. And so, you know, how does... It just doesn't make any sense. It's what I call a win-win comment. <laughs> yeah. by, the, by the way, and just for the record, the only party really making a stink about Ontario's alcohol monopolies during the past Ontario elections was the Freedom Party of Ontario. You can still see their ads on Freedom Party's website to see the evidence. And it's just not anything like what they're suggesting now, right? We're talking about get the government out of this business entirely. Now, the truth of this all is nothing is being legalized. Many people who are already in the cannabis business in some way may find that doing business under the pseudo-legality of cannabis prohibition as it is now is a pleasure compared to what may become much worse in the future when, the when, when it's supposedly legalized, which is not what's being done. So let me say a word about legality, and this gets kind of philosophical. Legality should never be applicable to things or objects. Legality or illegality can only pertain to actions, and particularly to human actions. One cannot be illegal. One can only do illegal, okay? An action is either free or it is not. Freedom already has its own limits of action built in. You can't violate the rights of others, of their action, to life, liberty, or property. To do so in a free society would be considered a crime, and is so considered in a majority of cases. Murder, rape, theft, extortion, fraud, and a whole host of very clear violations of life, liberty, and property. But added to this host of real crimes of action, which involve actual physical aggressions, is added an entirely secondary spectrum of so-called crimes, economic crimes of prohibited trade. The reason is always the same. One group wants a monopoly, and it doesn't want to have to compete with another group. And it doesn't matter what reason they tell you. They always tell you it's safety. Right? <laughs> Even in the Uber debate, it's safety. It's safety. It's true, yeah. Right? It's always safety. Oh, safety, safety. When I hear that, I just say, liar, liar, pants on fire. That's I, it's my first words. You know, I know what you're getting at there when you say that things should not be criminalized, but isn't the law more the possession, which is an action, yes. or the sale, which is an action, of pot? It's not necessarily... The pot itself. It's, it's the actions of possession well, and sale. Yeah, but, but that's, that's sort of an action. I know what you're saying. Possession is an action. I suppose it is. Owning your house is an action, I guess, in a sense. But they're criminalizing the thing, not, not possession. You're allowed to possess all sorts of things, just not that thing. 
Yes. Why? True enough. Right? So they're, so they're segregating that object from all other th objects of ownership, right? Without reason, other than safety, <laughs> right? Which is a lie. We know that. And you also see it in union organized labor movements, which are all communist and fascist based. And you see it in state monopolies on activities that involve alcohol, gambling, vice, drugs of all sorts, from prescription to prohibited, I might add, and of course, cigarettes and tobacco. They also want to pr prohibit vaping, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unless under state permission. So I hope you're starting to see the big picture here. And why are any drugs illegal? We visited that question many times before, but nobody's interested in the factual history behind various drug prohibitions because they've already invented new reasons to continue the prohibitions, which are, again, monopolies, the latest being, again, health of the nation, the public health, etc. But originally, most drug laws were passed for the most, uh, let's say, sinister of reasons, <laughs> including racism, out outright racism. We've, we've covered this all in the past. And, uh, you know, to, to wit, unit urges tight legal pot rules, reads the Windsor Star article, uh, written January 30th. Uh, if Canada is going to legalize marijuana, the local board of health is urging strong regulations to keep it away from youth and reduce other harmful effects. So you've got the Windsor-Essex County Health Unit offering no opinion on whether they should legalize it, but if it happens, the unit wants the government to bring in policies to make sure everyone is safe and protected from these cannabis-related harms. And uh, I, I have to ask, wh why don't they identify those harms? Are they talking about smoking? Because you don't have to smoke it. Are they talking about the THC? Because that's a variable factor. And it's, it's the value that people attach to the drug. So what are they talking about? It makes you wonder, given the government's great track record on public health care in Ontario, with its drug dispensaries for addicts popping up all over the city, and the daily crisis and prescription drugs and other state-regulated substances, all subsidized by tax dollars, I should add. So how credible or functional can any of these policies that these government people come up with possibly be? They just make things worse. It's another prohibition and drug control disaster in the making. And then the health unit cites a recent Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse report that links regular cannabis use early in life with behavioural and cognitive impairments, poor academic performance and reduced attention, information processing and memory. So we think it would really be important to have an age limit around it, uh, they say. Well, there's your classic example of irrelevancy. You see what they've done without us even noticing? They're saying that the kids can't smoke because of the danger of the drug. And that's sort of indirect, but that's irrelevant. Health is not a reason to prohibit access to adult activity. The issue of consent is. Consent, like freedom, has another side to it, and that's responsibility. And kids getting stoned or drunk are usually not able to be responsible for their actions. That is why in a free society it's perfectly legitimate to restrict their freedom until they earn it. It's not about the drug, it's not about the object, it's not about alcohol, it's not about the wine they drink or the pot they smoke. It's about them reaching the age of majority and an age of responsibility. Once they're there, that's the only issue with uh, youth. And of course we established that. They say 19, I, I figure if the age of consent is 18, it should at least be consistent. Knowledge is another and factor when it comes to consent. Uh, young people have to know what they're putting into their bodies. And even though uh, marijuana or cannabis is, is, is relatively harmless, in many forms, mm. um, they still should know the effects and they should know what it does to their body. And I don't think uh, that, uh, you're right, 19 is too long. 18 right. is the age of consent.
Well, we're going to continue now with Tom McConnell in conversation with University of Waterloo economics professor Anadiah Sen on his proposals of how the legalization of cannabis should take place in Canada through the C.D. Howe Institute, which he did the report for, and what governments should do going forward with the legalization. Uh, legalize, criminalize, decriminalize, regulate? Well, they're going to do all of the above. <laughs> and I'll let you know right now that I strongly disagree with the bulk of Professor Sen's proposals and why I at this point have come to conclude that intergovernment plans to legalize cannabis does not include ending prohibition in the distribution and sale of cannabis. Cannabis. It's a deadly and toxic market mixture. Prohibition plus monopoly corruption. But it looks like that's where we're heading. In Colorado, individuals are allowed to grow their own plants in limited quantities. I, I didn't add, I didn't support that in uh, in my report. Uh, that's up to the government to determine. But I think that my concern is that it's really important to have a legal supply going out, um, which meets safety and health standards. There's been some discussion of allowing the uh, LCBO, for example, or the Liquor Control Board outlets in other provinces to also sell marijuana. I think it makes a lot of sense to perhaps let um, the retail market evolve on its own. Um, there are already illegal storefronts, they're called dispensaries, which are mushrooming in Vancouver, and there are quite a few in Toronto. So I think things are just going on ahead, full steam. And um, so I'm not so sure if it's a good idea to, say, piggy bank on the LCBO. Um, given that, if you do, for example, sell, sell Verona through LCBO outlets, you will need considerable um, infrastructure expenditures on changing the store, making sure which areas are designated for um, marijuana sales, uh, making sure that you're training staff appropriately. Um, then you'll have a whole level of bureaucracy added to the LCBO, which means more taxpayer money. So I'm a bit apprehensive about that. So um, I took some uh, policy lessons from Colorado, and I took some from what we already have in Canada, what seems to be working well uh, with respect to, say, alcohol or tobacco, and I try to come up with a unique blueprint for our country. And the other, I'll quickly uh, just add, the other kind of key policy point which I bring up in the report, which is not based on a Colorado example, is that I do advocate price regulation. Um, I don't think we should go all the way in terms of competitive markets like Colorado has. Initially, when the market starts and it evolves, it may make sense to regular prices, uh, in which case you're making sure that you do not have an illicit black market but you also ensure that producers and retailers get reasonable returns. And they're not focusing on price competition. They're also just focusing on, uh, on safety and standards which meet proper health requirements. So I, I think those are important issues we need to talk about and come to some sort of consensus. But I like this one, Bud Bath and Beyond. <laughs> if you're looking to relax, sit back, Bud Bath and Beyond is a good one.
Bob, how are you? Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, don't mean to bring you down from your natural high. No problem. But, you know, it's 420 today, and I think people have lost sight of what it's all about. What is it all about, it, it, though? It's about not being put in jail for smoking pot. It's called prohibition. Yep. But we're, and, don't you see we're going along or get the society has changed, our government hopefully is changing. No, we're not changing that at all. We're well, we haven't hard. changed. You're right. All right. You know, listen to what you just heard today. Um, talking about continuing a monopoly. When they talk, say legalize, they mean monopolize. Yeah. And that can be worse. Yeah. You know, Mark Emery spent five years in an American prison. For selling seeds. For selling seeds, for heaven's sakes. And then I just heard a couple weeks ago, some poor Canadian fellows also spending five years in an American prison for selling turtles. No, oh, that's the worst case. Now, but, but it tells you what's coming. That's the monopoly. Yeah. The penalty is the same. And if the government has a monopoly on something, they ha now they have an interest in enforcing their interest. I predict that for a lot of people, this coming legalization, quote-unquote, in the pot industry will be wor very wor much, much worse than the current situation. I don't like the term legalized pot. I prefer let's end prohibition. Okay. And because we, what we have to stop doing is putting people in jail for not committing crimes other than possession or use. Now, if they endanger someone or anything like that, other issue, okay? And then you can actually cite drug use as a contributing factor and actually do something about it because the person has just demonstrated their inability to socialize or how, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. And, and so you don't just have a blanket prohibition on everyone and treat everyone like a criminal from day one. It, it, it's irrational, it's harmful, it's immoral. I, I find it unconscionable. If I, as a citizen, could never think of going next door to you and putting you in jail because I, I disagree with some substance you're smoking, even if it's banana peels. Yeah, you know? in, in my basement. Well, certainly my government does not have the right to do that on my behalf. And so it's a, it's a tremendous violation. It is, it is almost like... But just as slavery was the Achilles heel in the original American Constitution, so too is drug prohibition the huge Achilles heel in the American fabric of justice today. And the biggest supporters of all drug prohibition, always has been, always will be, are the people in the business. And that's organized crime when you're getting into some of the heavier stuff. Yep. So, you know, watch Godfather once again, because that's a reminder of that lesson. That's what that was all about. And, uh, you know, so we have to be careful where we're going here. Um, I think I like your idea. I don't think there should be any controls, quote-unquote, other than the reasonableness. Yeah, sure, you yeah. keep it out of the hands of kids. Yes, yes, all those things, they're all better done in a marketplace. And I don't care if Granny grows a 100 plants in her backyard because they look nice. And a lot of pot plants do look nice. They're, they're a nice plant. Yeah, fair enough. Just all right, grow. All right okay. thanks, Bob. Take, Take care. care. I've met people who grew cannabis for its aesthetic value or for its value as a pesticide in the garden. It works very well. You know that it smells like skunk, right? <laughs> a lot of skunk weed out there. It actually deters animals and other pests from your garden, and people have used it for that. Deters people from your garden, too. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> that smell. <laughs> well, <laughs> and the plant has a myriad of uses, all of which are being stymied by the greedy few who want a monopoly and are willing to put others in jail to maintain that monopoly. You know, again, give them the following options, legalize, criminalize, decriminalize, or regulate, and they'll do all of the above because that gives them control, and that's what's coming 
under the new pot regime. You know, you said something in the last segment, Bob, mm-hmm. which which struck a chord with me. You said, what self-respecting stoner would buy his pot from a government agency such as the LCBO? Yeah, that was one of the questions asked by one of the um, reporters there. Yeah. Well, it got me to thinking... Um, Right now, the Liberal government of Canada has overturned a number of pieces of legislation or is in the process of overturning previous government legislation. What's to stop the next government, you know, say it's a Conservative government, from overturning this so-called capital L liberalization of pot? They would then have at their disposal the information of people who went to the LCBO or government agency to buy pot. They would know who the stoners are because sometimes you have to go into these organizations and prove your age and show your identification, which sometimes is scanned, as it is often scanned in the United States when you buy some beer. It reminds me of gun control and registration, remember? They want to know who owns what. Yeah, it's a scary uh, way to do everything. Um, Good question, though. In the conversation we just heard between Tom and myself, I also drew a parallel between Prince of Pop Mark, Mark Emery, who as a Canadian was extradited to the U.S. for a five-year prison sentence for selling pot seeds to U.S. customers, even as several states around his prison were selling pot legally as he served his sentence, <laughs> just to, sh- you know, to show you the ridiculousness of it. But I also brought up the issue of uh, the turtle smuggler. Did you hear about him? Yes. And this is out of the London Free Press, April 13th, Associated Press, Windsor Star. Turtle smuggler jailed five years, an Ontario man, written by Ed White, Ann Arbor, Michigan. A Canadian man who repeatedly entered Michigan to buy and ship thousands of turtles to his native China was sentenced Tuesday for five years in federal prison for smuggling. It was an unexpected punishment for the 27-year-old Kai Zhu, a Windsor, Ontario resident who has been locked up already for 19 months since his arrest and was hoping to get out. And ahead of the hearing, he wrote a letter to District Judge John Corbett O'Meara saying he sold turtles partly to make money for college. He said he was a a semester short of an engineering degree from the University of Waterloo, the same university that that professor came from. Uh, the government said he shipped turtles to China from Canada and the U.S. or hired people. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, well, and they caught him at the Ontario-Michigan border with 51 turtles taped to his legs. <laughs> now, here's the weird part. It's not illegal to buy turtles from breeders in the U.S., but his crime was shipping them overseas without a federal permit. That was the crime. And because they didn't charge him for tax evasion, they didn't charge him for it just for not having the permit. So I have to work with that. That's all I've got here. And the, and the uh, assistant U.S. attorney, Sarah Woodward, asked for five years in prison near the low end of the sentencing guidelines. And that's the same it was with Mark. Five years was considered the low end for a fine for selling pot seeds. Uh, Mark would, actually faced the death penalty at one point yeah, in time. It was ridiculous. And yet murderers don't get stuff like that. It, it, it just shows you how evil people are who want a monopoly. You have to come to terms with that. And they have to too. I'm sorry, I can't be apologetic to them. Sorry, you're using this monopoly. You're hurting people. And of course, the article additionally notes that Zoo was not a sophisticated international dealer as argued by the defense, whereas the government said shipments intercepted at airports were worth more than a million dollars. Now, I'm a little suspect of that, given that they didn't catch him through any of that stuff. They only caught him because they saw him at the border, get this, with, quote, irregularly shaped bulges under his sweatpants. After attaching 41 turtles to his legs using clear packing tape and hiding 10 more between his legs. 
Can you imagine running around like that? And the judge said, we don't get a whole lot of cases exactly like this every day. <laughs> so under the so-called legalization plans, as we've heard them described thus far, Mark Emery would have been forced to spend five years in jail, not for violating prohibition, but for competing with the state monopoly. And that's the new rules that we're getting. Yep, there's nothing going to change. Yep. Again, this assuming that the goal was to free the market for possession and trade between free citizens. It is, it is going to get mod marginally better for users, let's face it. But don't try to get into the business. Now, I just wanted to review some of the things that the university professor Sen said on his proposals, the things I agree with and don't agree with. And he had basically, let me see here, seven basic points. Uh, one, pardon individuals who have criminal charges against them but not committed any crime. I agree with that. That should, should be done right away, anybody who's only been convicted of possession or something. Of course. Uh, number two, there has to be clear guidelines who's responsible for what between government. Now, he, he suggests the federal government should regulate the supply and production, whereas the provincial government should work with the distribution networks and, do, and set up sales. So and do you think we're going to see a Canadian cannabis marketing board in the future? Oh, we're going to see all sorts of <laughs> bureaucracies. Third, he said there should be, get this, strong penalties for illegal trafficking, distribution, and production, as with alcohol and tobacco. So pro prohibition. Uh, I disagree with that, those last two. Four, uh, here, he just asked the question, how should the governments allow efficient distribution of marijuana but keep it out of children's hands? The way we do it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Duh. Uh, it's just <laughs> so stupid. And then uh, he said, talks about growing your own stone. He refers to Colorado where they allow three to four plants. He doesn't support that. He says, he says you have to have a legal supply that meets safety and health regulations. <laughs> I, I, I just sitting there listening to the guy going, oh, my God. Obviously, he's paid to say this. I can't see an objective person saying stuff like this. I don't know what the C.D. Howe Institute's about, but it's not about freedom. Uh, he, he, you know, I disagree with any limit. Any limit is the same as prohibition. Can the state limit how many tomatoes you can grow in your yard? Is there a limit on that? If so, why can they do it with a pot plant? You see, you see the difference in picking objects, like, you know? Mm -hmm. And he says, let the retail market storefront develop its own market. Now, I kind of agree with that. I don't know how he fits that in with the rest of his ideas, because he wants it separate from the LCBO and beer store, because he realizes there's going to be a whole bureaucracy there. But he's, he's advocating a bureaucracy. And then he goes, and finally, he says, I advocate price regulation. This is an economist. Regulate prices to make sure you cannot have an illicit black market and ensure that the focus is on safety and not on competitive prices. So I'm thinking, how are they going to, how do you regulate supply and demand? You know what they're going to do? They're going to overproduce like a son of a gun, because they always do, or underproduce, because it doesn't matter. And uh, there's going to be no connection between the market and it, the users. It's, so they're going to force people to go and keep doing things. They illegally. may actually force farmers to grow cannabis if there's uh, marketing boards and things of that nature. <laughs> it could be, yes. Um, but again, that's the situation we're in. Now, other issues that have, I, I just think the whole thing's ridiculous, the way they're going about it. Uh, conversations that are needed, and these, are, these demand a complete show on their own to properly view the whole pot legalization legalization issue. We really should revisit cigarettes and alcohol. Those things shouldn't be 
regulated the way they are. There's no reason why cigarettes and alcohol can't be sold in variety stores like they were for years and years and years. But now they've, they've killed the whole industry there by the way they've regulated those. Uh, you know, they always talk about safety and health, but vaping they're, they're regulating and won't allow, and yet everyone knows that's the market taking care of itself. But no, we're the doctors. We want to take care of you, right? And then there's, they say, you know, he says, we haven't really just studied the effects of cannabis use. It's been studied to death for decades, for a century. What we haven't studied is the effects of cannabis prohibition and how much damage that does to a society, to its morals, to its politicians, to the whole infrastructure. As I said to Tom... It brings the law into disrepute. Oh, totally. As I said to Tom, just as slavery was the Achilles heel of the American Constitution, so too is drug prohibition the continued Achilles heel of the American fabric of today. So, and of course, there's the issues that uh, Tasha Kiridan brings up in her January 7th article about how there's three major drug treaties that Canada would contravene if they tried to legalize um, um, pot. That she did point out that there are many legalization movements and, uh, in Europe as well as Latin and South America. Uruguay has legalized pot. And get this, Mexico's Supreme Court ruled in November 2015 that producing and consuming marijuana was a human right. Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I don't think they've legalized it yet. So I have to admit I was very surprised to learn that. And uh, I don't know how I missed it. Of course, it's not a right. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's no more a right, right than being able to produce right. or consume tomatoes. Again, you can't define rights by particular objects or commodities. To segregate the production and consumption of pot from the production and consumption of all possible consumer goods is to miss the whole point of what human rights are all about. Having the right to take action in the pursuit and protection of one's own life, liberty, and property, including the use of force in defense of the same. And uh, so you can get into a whole issue on property. Uh, so there's a lot of real things that need to be legalized in Canada, like faster, better sick care, like faster, better transit, more reliable electricity, cigarettes and alcohol, uh, you know, all these things. We could, you know, legalize all of them because <laughs> none of them are. So as strange as my last word of advice on these issues may sound, I'm quite serious. When it comes to health care, affordable electricity, your favorite beverage or drug, the type of transportation you prefer, or what you learn in school, we don't really need to legalize anything. We need to end state prohibitions on these trades and activities and forevermore outlaw all state-sanctioned monopolies. All monopolies operate on corruption and introduce the use of force to the marketplace. Capitalism is about prohibiting the use of force. And that's a prohibition I would support. <laughs> you too, Robert? Well, you bet. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, our time has become quite prohibitive, and we'll have to wind it down for today's presentation. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be I made my first trip as a Canadian I was very proud I went to Mexico for the Millennium New Year my first time to travel as a Canadian quite a bit different than traveling as an American we're on the plane on the way down and they're all like they're telling us oh it'll be great it'll be a lot of fun we get there first thing happens to me I get searched at the border on the way into Mexico Standing there, what? What do you? What are you? Sure, I'm on the way in. What are you? 
what, what do you look, everything that you're looking for is available from the blue van in the parking lot. <laughs> what, what are you looking for, clean water and expensive laborers? What are you... <laughs> what do you, you thought I brought my own marijuana to Mexico? Like taking your own hooker downtown. It's <laughs> makes no sense.